Go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. As I said last week, we continue to go back and forth between 12 and 13 as they're so integrated together as it relates to the narrative. So this is our last time addressing these parts of 12 and parts of 13 as we will find our way finally to Exodus 14 uh, in the coming weeks. As you've opened your Bibles to Exodus 12, uh, I remind you that we return to this Exodus event. We return to this display of the Lord's sovereign rule over all His creation. And not only this, but also His gracious care and preservation over His people to show forth the wonders of His mercy to us who take refuge in Christ. The two passages this morning that I'll be reading from are Exodus 12, 33 through 41 and Exodus 13, 17 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened And with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. For they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. About 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Chapter 13, verse 17. Now, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God had said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God let the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham and on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go again to him for help 
having heard the reading of his word. O Lord, we ask you now, having heard your word, to attend now the preaching of your word so that it may be true according to it. And that you would bless that to the ears of your people, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. For your glory alone we ask and pray. In Christ our Lord's name, amen. Amen. Well, here we have read that Pharaoh understood, at least temporarily, the answer to his question from chapter 5, where he asked, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? He had learned at least temporarily, at least enough to let them go out, that the Lord is the one true and living God, the one whom no one can withstand. And where we had been recognizing and emphasizing the sacrificial work of Christ in the institution of the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the consecration of the firstborns, the passage before us is focused more on the obedience of Christ in his redemptive work, so that we continue the intention of our Lord to provide in picture in the Old Testament what is provided in substance in the New. Or as Augustine Augustine put it, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. So this morning as we look at these passages, we'll see not only what the Lord had done for for Israel, but ultimately what the Lord has done for us in Christ. Well, Dr. J. Gresham Machen was a theologian who lived from 1881 to 1937. And he was the principal figure in the founding of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia in 1929 and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church denomination in 1936. He founded both of these, or he was integral in the founding of both these things because he stood against the rise of a liberal Christianity which was devoid of foundational Christian doctrines such as the inerrancy of Scripture, the inherent sinfulness of man, and the holiness of God and the deity of Christ, to name just a few. He was well known for writing his book called Liberal, uh, Liberalism and Christianity, where he says in the book that these are not two forms of Christianity, but these are two religions, and he goes to explain such things. And in standing against the rise of this liberal Christianity, he saw fit to leave Princeton University and begin Westminster Seminary, as well as to leave the Presbyterian Church USA and to find found the Orthodox Presbyterian Church denomination. Well, during his time at Westminster, he had a student named John Murray, and John Murray eventually became his colleague. And he would also eventually become one of Machen's closest friends later in life. Why do we go through this short history of Machen's life as well as his friendship with John Murray? Well, because Machen would somewhat die unexpectedly on January 1st, 1937. It was soon after the Second General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And his final known words were a brief telegram to his friend, John Murray. He's in a 
hospital bed in North Dakota, of all places. He's suffering from severe pneumonia. And he somehow is able to dictate these, this message or this telegram to a nurse who then takes it to the telegram office and arrives into John Murray's hands. And it, he wrote or he said, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. That is our theme this morning. That's my thesis is that there is, there is no hope without the active obedience of Christ. And I believe we can see this here in the work of the Lord in bringing out the Israelites of Egypt, both in provision and in path. First in provision, for we see that the Lord is providing the Israelites something here as they leave Egypt. And it was interesting that they were leaving Egypt at all. For up until the moment of the Passover, there really was no hope for them to leave. They were under the uh, oversight, the rule. They were under the uh, being captured by or being held by the Egyptians, a much more powerful nation. As a matter of fact, the Egyptians or the Israelites were not even a nation at this point. They were just a, a great number of people. So before the Passover, there was no hope of leaving Egypt. After the Passover, though, it was not possible for them to stay. The Egyptians and Pharaoh would say, you must go. You have to go. You cannot stay here. What did the Egyptians say? They said, if you don't leave, we will all be dead. One commentator observes that how would thousands of people survive in the wilderness that lay between Egypt and and Canaan during that time. They would need money to buy supplies from traders, caravanners, and local settlements. And in plan that he had for them, but that they themselves could not necessarily yet comprehend, to make at his command a worship center and worship implements worthy of his greatness. Where would the money come from? The answer is from the Egyptians as plunder. In other words, the spoils of war. Here the Lord leading out the Israelites out of Egypt. He doesn't send them out empty-handed. He sends them out with the riches of Egypt. They're, They're full of these riches, of this jewelry, of this gold. And so when we read that the gold of in the tabernacle how all the furniture is covered and overlaid with gold. We see the Lord providing them that here now. Yet, He has not yet given them one plan, plan, one inkling that He will have these implements. Yet He provides them the plunder of Egypt. Here the provision of the Lord is beyond the comprehension of those who receive it. And yet, they will find It is of utmost necessity when it comes to their time of need. He not only provides them the plunder of the Egyptians, 
but he also guides them in the direction or the path that they should go. There was obviously a more direct route from Egypt to Canaan, and it went through the way of the Philistines. It went through another mighty nation of the day, one that would uh, in future plague the Israelites. But here he sends them not by the way of the Philistines. He sends them by the way of the Red Sea. You, you might can imagine that if you were an Israelite and you were getting sent out of Egypt and you had an idea of where Canaan was and you set your direction in that way and the pillar of cloud starts diverting and you're wondering, we're not going towards Canaan anymore. We're going this way. We're going to go around. We're going to go uh this direction first. You can also imagine that they were ready to follow the Lord wherever He guided them also. For the Lord had delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It was a mighty thing that the Lord had done. For the weeping was probably still happening in Egypt during this time. There were still the morning of the firstborns when they were leaving on that 15th day. And so by the act of God's redeeming them, they were ready to follow Him wherever He guided them. Not only did this very plan to return to Egypt actually occur less than two years later as the Lord warned if they go to the Philistines if we go by the way of the Philistines the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt well less than two years later in Numbers 14 we read that they fall into despair and they're, they're say we should just go back to Egypt as a small thing of, of appetite or hunger arises in them Oh, how quickly they forgot. But we must not forget that the Israelites were accustomed only to Egypt, where they had lived for 430 years. Though they had been redeemed out of Egypt, they were still accustomed to Egypt. They, they at one point pined for the meat pots. Remember when we sat around and ate meat in Egypt? Forget about the chains, forget about the labor, forget about the straw that they removed from uh, the bricks and they caused us to make more bricks than we were supposed to make. Forget about all that. It is not though the Lord redeems them out of Egypt. There was a constant draw away from Egypt that the Lord was to guide them. They would have learned to trust the Lord more and more with every passing day. That He was guiding them to that promised end, to that promised land. Such rings true, the prophet Isaiah's words in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Lord was going to demonstrate something to the Israelites at the Red Sea that he wasn't that he
could it demonstrate to them by taking them by way of the Philistines? And it wasn't because of the Lord's hand or the Lord's lack of power. It was because of the Lord's grace and mercy that he guides them around the Philistines. And then to show them the parting of the Red Sea, and as we've seen, one result of that is that the land of Canaan comes to know, the inhabitants of the land come to know the wonders that the Lord has wrought for the people of Israel so that their hearts would be melted before their arrival. So the Lord was not only providing, but He was guiding them the path out of Egypt, away from Egypt, into, into the promised land. For the Lord was not just saying, I am opposed to this injustice. He was saying, I have chosen you as my people, that you will be a people to me, and I will be a God to you, and I will give you this land that I promised your fathers. For we see also in the plundering of the Egyptians, we see the promises of God coming to fruition, where he told Abraham that his descendants in Genesis 15 would go away into another nation, but he, they will leave with great possessions. Such was the faithfulness of Joseph that he told and bound his sons that when you go out of this place, Joseph dying in wealth, great wealth. There was, he was second only to Pharaoh. Could you imagine the wealth that Joseph had? And he says, look at all that I have, sons, and be ready to leave it. Be ready to forsake it all, for take my bones to a better land, the land that the Lord has promised. So the Lord provides the Israelites, and the Lord guides and directs their path. And so we may have already begin, begun to see about this idea for us as we think and, and reflect on the instrument of God's deliverance being the Passover and the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And we see that the Lord provides their redemption out of Egypt through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, yet He also provides the provision of the riches of Egypt. He also guides and directs their path out of Egypt. He doesn't just say, now you're free to go. And so for the Christian, we see that not only God provides the righteousness for the desired inheritance, but also the best path toward preparedness for it. The Lord is provided the substitution in Christ but he also has provided the righteousness necessary to enter into that promised land that heavenly land first let's look at the provision of righteousness forgiveness is but the beginning of the Christian experience for the Lord had said that he would not only redeem out of bondage in Egypt but that he would be their God and they would be his people. If Christ had merely paid the penalty of sin for us, 
and had done nothing more, we should be at best back in the situation in which Adam found himself when God placed him under the covenant of works. For if we can even, we're only theoretically separating these, these ideas, for if Christ had just paid the penalty for the first Adam's sin and ours, then we would be back in the state in the garden where the attain, attainment of eternal life would have been dependent upon our perfect obedience to the law of God. We know that, maybe you know that him well, he paid a debt. He did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. When Christ gave himself up on the cross, which is the culmination of his suffering and his sacrificial giving, he pays the penalty for the wrath due to us for our sin. Yet that gets us in balance talk to zero. And what is necessary for eternal life but perfect and perpetual righteousness? So that's why we read in Romans 5, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. That's why Christ is not just the second Adam. He is the last Adam. He doesn't just bring us into where Adam was. He takes us where Adam was to go. As I brought up Machen earlier, he says that he has not merely paid the penalty of Adam's first sin and the penalty of the sins which we individually have committed, but also he has positively merited for us eternal life. He was, in other words, our representative both in penalty pain and in probation keeping he paid the penalty of sin for us and he stood the probation for us turn with me to philippians 2 where we can see this again through the apostle paul Paul writing to the Philippians in chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as man, As a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him to to bestowed on him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth. 
and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In verse 8, we read of this obedience to the point of death. We know Christ suffered on the cross. Scripture also tells us his whole life was a life of humiliation and suffering. He said during the incarnation that he had no place to lay his head. He certainly was not a man of means, for when taxes were to be paid, he sent Peter to go fishing. His life can be described as suffering and humiliation. But the epitome of his suffering, which is known as his passive obedience, is his giving up his life on the cross for his people. But what is of this obedience? Christ continually says in his Gospels that he came to do the will of the Father. He came to complete what he, came, what he was sent to do. That the Father said of the Son, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Christ merited the favor of God. The pleasure of the Father was merited by Christ as He obeyed the Lord in thought, word, and deed. And certainly His obedience all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross to this glorious reality of the Christian in verse 10, that every, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. We live no longer as slaves, but free citizens of heaven under the kingship of Christ our Lord. This merited by Christ by his active obedience. Spirit told the Ephesians that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. The Spirit who also inspired through the Apostle Peter, uh, Peter these words to the diaspora in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We see that as we are united to Christ by faith, it's called the great exchange. He takes on the imputation of all of our sin and the penalty due to it. And we receive his righteousness. So that we are not only debt free, but that our coffers are overflowing with the righteousness of the Son of God. Machen again says, those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ not only are righteous in the sight of God, but they are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. In their case, the probation is over. 
It is not over because they have stood it successfully. It is not over because they themselves have earned the reward of assured blessedness, which God promised on condition of perfect obedience. But it is over because Christ has stood it for them. It is over because Christ has merited it for them. The reward by his perfect obedience to God's law. He saved us from hell and he earned for us our entrance into heaven. All that we have then, we owe unto him. There is no blessing that we have in this world or the next for which we should not give thanks to Christ. So then we are not only redeemed through the suffering and ultimately vicarious sacrifice of Christ, and our inheritance being purchased through the life of the last Adam, who merited eternal life to all those who are united to him by faith, but also our lives have been so ordained that each circumstance then prepares us for that blessed end, which is our perfected sanctification. How does Christ's active obedience then play into? If our righteous standing for God is unchanging, how does that then affect how you now live in light of Christ's finished work? Does that mean now that you go on and live licentiously? It doesn't matter what I do. Christ's righteousness covers me, so I don't need to care. Or is it that now that God has redeemed you in Christ and set you apart, and in Scripture when it says you're set apart, that means you're sanctified, that means you're put into holy use. Paul says we are now temples of the Spirit of God. We now come to the Son in obedience, and like His obedience. We come desiring to please him who redeemed us. And yet recognizing though that we do it imperfectly. We do it in light of his perfection. And then we are able to see that every circumstance the Lord is working as he doesn't take us through the Philistines. He takes us around to the Red Sea that every circumstance is preparation for us. He's working it for our good and his glory. So then, as the Lord had mercifully and sovereignly determined the Israelites' path toward Canaan, so is sanctification. So sanctification is not the unaided work of a human being. <clears throat> it is the ongoing work of God in and through a human being. This work begins at effectual calling and regeneration when God creates a new heart and a new spirit in a person. And that this shows that sanctification never merits anything from God. It is the work of God's free grace, as our confession says. Another theologian, Guy Water, says in justification, the righteousness of Christ is imputed or counted to the believer in God's courtroom and received through faith alone. This imputed righteousness is the sole basis for our justification. In sanctification, God infuses grace such that we become inwardly more and more righteous in our lives. If we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, 
then we now stand perfectly and unchangeably justified in love, gratitude, and obedience to our great triune God. Let us aim for nothing less than what we, what we one day shall be, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christ's active obedience has everything to do with your sanctification. Because your sanctification, the full and perfected sanctification, is the consummation of his redemptive work. Yet not merited by the sincerity of living in this life. Only held by faith. Yet those that have been saved from such despair and have been given such great riches of mercy should above all be the ones who seek to obey and love their Lord for such a deliverance. My final word would rightly then come from Machen again one more time. He puts forth a dialogue between the law of God and a sinful man saved by grace. Listen to this believer. Man, says the law of God, have you obeyed my commands? No, says the sinner saved by grace. I have disobeyed them, not only in the person of my representative Adam in his first sin, but also in that I myself have sinned in thought, word, and deed. Well then, sinner, says the law of God, have you paid the penalty which I pronounced upon disobedience? No, says the sinner. I have not paid the penalty myself, but Christ has paid it for me. He was my representative when he died there on the cross. Hence, so far as the penalty is concerned, I am clear. Well then, sinner, says the law of God. How about the conditions which God has pronounced for the attainment of, blessed, of assured blessedness? Have you stood the test? Have you merited eternal life by perfect obedience during the period of probation? No, says the sinner. I have not merited eternal life by my own perfect obedience. God knows and my own conscience knows that even after I became a Christian, I have sinned in thought, word, and deed. But although I have not merited eternal life by any obedience of my own, Christ has merited it for me by his perfect obedience. He was not for it was not he was not for himself subject to the law. No obedience was required of him for himself since he was lord of all. That obedience then which he rendered to the law when he was on earth was rendered by him as my representative. I have no righteousness of my own, but clad in Christ's perfect righteousness, imputed to me and received by faith alone. I can glory in the fact that so far as I am concerned, the probation has been kept, and as God is true, there awaits me the glorious reward which Christ thus earned for me. So we can understand why in a dying thought, in a cold bed in North Dakota, Machen said, I am so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. 
no hope without it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, the wonders of your mercy are beyond comprehension. For to know the depth of our sin and the offense to a holy God is to know and comprehend the infinite eternalness of your holiness and righteousness. Something we can never fully comprehend, yet we know by the testimony of your word that this offense is true and cannot be overcome by us. So we praise you, Lord, that one is overcome. One has not only paid our debt, but also provided the necessary righteousness. That one being our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, may we glory in this. May it be the spur and the fire in our lives to live for you. To seek to obey you. Not that we may earn, but they, that we may show our gratitude for such a gift as this. We ask these things in the name of our advocate, in the name of our representative, in the name of our mediator, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.